For me, it's just being a good person who relates to other people equally with dignity and respect. Hear these stories of pain, pride, tolerance, and adoration from and about fathers who have a disability, are feminist, gay, straight, or transgender. Sunday at 6.30 p.m. on the Radio Chronicles. And this is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Hello, my name is Antonio Ortiz, and I hope you're having a great Friday afternoon. You're listening to Open Book on KPFA. Today, we will hear heartfelt stories of coming out, of same-sex marriage, and of other experiences from the LGBTQQI experience. Earlier this month, StoryCorps came to KPFA to do some recordings for this month's Pride Celebration. StoryCorps is an oral history project based on the idea that the stories of everyday people are the most important and interesting of all. So stay with us to hear excerpts of those interviews. You're listening to Open Book. The brainchild of radio producer Dave Isay, StoryCorps is a revolutionary new initiative to collect the stories of everyday people in sound. It's simple. You bring a friend or loved one to a soundproof StoryCorps booth and interview them for 40 minutes. You walk away with a CD of the interview, and with your permission, another CD goes to the Library of Congress, where it will become part of the permanent collection of the stories of our time. As I mentioned earlier, StoryCorps came to KPFA to record interviews from the LGBTQQI community. So let's begin. I don't want to go too much into a history lesson, but for those of you who don't know about the Stonewall Riots, it is considered to be the defining event that marked the start of the gay rights movement. In a nutshell, it was a series of spontaneous demonstrations against a police raid that took place on June 28, 1969, at the Stonewall Inn in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of New York City. These riots are seen as the first instance in American history where gays and lesbians fought back. In the following excerpt, we will hear Rebecca Chikuris and her dearest friend, Janine Weller, recount their first experience learning about the Stonewall Riots. Rebecca came out as lesbian during her youth, while Janine, on the other hand, came out at age 45. Let's hear how the Stonewall Riots shaped their identities. When I was just out of high school, I'd just graduated. In order to sort of acclimate myself to the adult world, I began taking Time and Newsweek magazines, and I would read adult issues. I would read what was going on in government and politics and blah, blah, blah. There was a little article in Time magazine about the Stonewall riots, and then I, I remember seeing news footage of it on television. And in my parents' home, my first overt expression of who I was was just a tiny one. I cut that article out of Time magazine. It was probably three column inches at the most. And I taped it up 
over my desk where I did my homework as a child in my bedroom. And one day uh, we were having some sort of backyard barbecue Memorial Day or something. And the neighbors were over and somehow this fellow who was my neighbor and whose kids I babysat for was standing in my bedroom talking to me. I guess I was painting a picture or something. He came in to look at it, offer a compliment. And he saw that, and he asked me about Stonewall. And uh, I said, well, I think people should be free to be who they are. And he said, it's fine for people to be who they are unless they're child molesters. And then he launched into this riff about, you know, the usual about recruiting children, molesting children, just living a depraved uh, life of appetites uncontrolled and uncontrollable. And I knew that wasn't me, and I wondered if that was those people. And, you know, that, and then I thought, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And that was just a terrifically liberating moment for me because, you know, these were all the adults. These are all the people that I obeyed who told me I could have the car, not have the car. I could go out. I couldn't go out. You know, whatever. This was the normative operating culture. And I just remember thinking, he does not know what he's talking about. I don't have to listen to him. For me, it was... Right after I came out, I wanted to read everything there was to read about gay history, gay life, this, that, and the other thing. So I went down to the Castro and got a bunch of books, and there was, I guess, a now classic book called Stone Butch Blues about a woman who very much not only dressed like a man but considered having what's now known as sort of transgender operations or um, I don't think she ever did. But in any case, she was at Stonewall, which was in New York. And my recollection is it it was a police raid on a bar. Right. They hauled everyone off the jail for really what... The really Queens fought back. Yeah, the Queens fought back. And I was fascinated by it, angered by it, didn't quite know how my idea of being a lesbian fit into this. And for me, that was the struggle, the beginning of a struggle of saying, I know I'm gay, you know, I know I really love this and I want to be a lesbian, but I don't want to look like a man and I don't, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and yeah, the where first do time, I fit in here? The first time I went into a lesbian bar, I was so appalled by I was what petrified. I saw. It, it scared the living <laughs> hell out of me. I just <laughs> turned around and ran. I did the same thing. And it wasn't so much that they looked like men, they were wearing leisure suits. And I thought, oh my God, if this, <laughs> if this means that I have to wear leisure suits the rest of my adult life, I think that I'm going to have to jump off a cliff or something. Fortunately, fashion evolved. I've never worn a leisure suit. Those were the voices of Rebecca Chikuris and Janine Weller. Up next, we will hear the voices of Elizabeth Kristen and her Iranian-American wife, Molly Kigasari. In this excerpt, Elizabeth asks Molly how she got the wedding rings that they are now both wearing. Also, Molly remembers how she felt being named Iranian of the Day last year when they were married. Let's listen. What do you remember about the two rings that we're wearing, our wedding rings? What do you remember about getting those? Well, I came to the U.S. in 1982 as a Berkeley student, and I uh, decided to go back to Iran in 1992 before I made a decision to live here. I, I thought that um, the circumstances of life brought me to Berkeley, but did I want to go back to where I was born and raised? And uh, when I went back to Iran, it was very interesting to feel and see that 
I was not Iranian. That that I had essentially grew up in Berkeley. And uh, I remember I went to get on a bus to go to uh, uh, my old high school to see where that was. I remember buying the ticket, which is two cents, trying to get on the bus. I heard this roar and uh, commotion. And I asked the conductor, what's going on? And he said, sister, you're supposed to be getting from the back of the bus, not the front of the bus, which I had no idea that's how you were supposed to get on a bus in Iran. That's not how it was when I was growing up there. I was so offended by the fact that as a woman, I had to get on from the back of the bus that I handed him the ticket, and I said, I will walk. And I remember I made important decision of not ever going back to Iran again because I finally realized that the country that I was born in no longer existed. In 10 years... Things have changed so much in Iran that was beyond recognition for me. So I didn't want to leave the country without something to remember. And I bought a pair of rings, one for me and one the person that I would spend the rest of my life with. Back then, I didn't even know you. In fact, we met in 1997. And when I finally decided to present you with the ring that it actually fit were you surprised at how many people wanted to come to our wedding in 2008 when I saw so many of these people crying is when I uh, I really understood the magnitude of it and um, that's when I became emotional other than that I was well composed and I wasn't going to be emotional When we got married last year, you were named Iranian of the day. How did that feel? A lot of my Iranian friends congratulated me. Iranian.com called me the Iranian of the day for being brave to come out. And um, a lot of my Iranian friends told me that I was courageous for getting married and, and telling everybody about it. And I never thought about that as a courageous move uh, because you are who you are. You live your life according to who you are. And if to some other people that's courageous, well, then that's what it is. But to me, it's expressing who I am and not taking the societal forces into account of feeling any shame. I have no shame for who I am. That was Malik Ghazari and Elizabeth Kristen at historical recording done here at KPFA earlier this month. Just like the past two excerpts, every day at StoryCorps booths across the country, ordinary people share extraordinary stories with friends and loved ones. In this next conversation, a coming out story, Ben Ellis tells his fiancée, Hector Marin Rodas, about how his family reacted to his coming out. My dad, he came up and picked me up from work. I was a gymnastics instructor then. And we went out to eat and both of us are nervous and wrecked. And I just finally was like, okay, 
say what you want to say, ask what you want to ask. He was like, all right, does this mean you're going to wear women's clothes? And I was like, no. And his whole body just whew, relaxed and he felt better. And, and that was fine. After that, we've had a really good relationship. My brother's uncomfortable with it, even though he won't admit it. He's kind of macho. So how did the rest of your family take it, being gay? My sister's good. She was great. She said she'd love me and support me no matter what. After I came out, my mom, she didn't talk to me for a year. And in our marriage right now, she's telling her side of the family that we're not really getting married. By God's standard, she's not allowing me to. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm curious, though, how does that make you feel? Me? Like your mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She's kind of out of the picture for me. Kind of don't really consider her part of your family. Yeah. Never met her, and your family doesn't really deal with her. I think the only person that actively does is your brother. Yeah. It's just, it's weird for me because my family is just such strong women and, you know, the women all kind of take care of all of us and they're always there and always very supportive. So it's such a huge contrast. For me, the mother presence has always been the strongest. Mm-hmm. I would say, like, my mother presence was very strong, but I think it was the flip side. It wasn't very nurturing. It was very controlling and violent and demeaning where yours, I mean, I've met your mom and your grandmother and they're all supportive and I'm very impressed, you know, they're old school Colombian and they accept you and they accept me and that's really amazing to have. But I'm lucky because my dad's so accepting and cool and I actually, the one time I did ever dress and drag, do women's clothes, it was for a party, and I did not like it, but he was there. He came to visit in Hawaii, and he was like, he laughed. He was fine. Like, he's come so far, like that one fear he had. So he's so fantastic. I think that's one of the things, are, with the exception of your mom, um, I think your family's pretty open to listening. That was Ben Ellis and Hector Marin Rodas. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Open Book. I am your host, Antonio Ortiz. Today, we are listening to excerpts from StoryCorps interviews recorded earlier this month here at KPFA. StoryCorps is a unique oral history project that collects the voices of our times. And you can visit the StoryCorps booth in San Francisco at the Contemporary Jewish Museum and preserve your story and sound. All participants talk about whatever they wish to talk about. Topics range, but in today's show, we are playing stories recorded for Pride Month. In this next story, Kristen Zimmerman remembers the birth of her first son, Yonah, and also her feelings of unity with her pregnant partner, Adrian Block. So I was working, 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 and my partner called me, and she said, I'm in labor. I'm like, okay, I'll be, you know, and she kind of gave me super advanced warning because she's like, you should take time off, like you should make sure you're grounded. And and I got home, and then, you know, she was in more active labor, and I said, can you please let me sleep? Can you please let me sleep so I can be really present later? She said, I can't believe you're asking me that. But she said, okay. And so um, I crashed out for a little while. So it was a night of her basically in in what was going to be our son's room, you know, in the rocking chair and kind of really um, holding herself. And I woke up 
I don't know, probably, I can't remember, like five, six in the morning, you know, and was with her. First, we were just there together. And at some point we called our doula and she came and she kind of took over a little bit. She had Adrian in bed and she had, it was massaging her. And then we were up and down walking up our street in East Oakland chanting. We'd walk, 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 and then huddle and chant. And at some point on our walk, Adrian's like, I have to push. And the doula's like, what do you mean you have to push? And she said, I have to push. So we kind of got in the car. We got all all ready to go. And we were driving. We got to the hospital, and I was driving around. It was so funny. We had been there a million times before for appointments, but all of a sudden I didn't know where the, the parking lot was and where we were supposed to go. So I'm driving around, and she's in back, and she's laying down. I'm like, okay, it's okay, it's okay. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm freaking out. And finally she's like, it's over there. <laughs> so she had to take over. But we got there, and then it was it was still a while. And she kind of fooled everybody because... She was not the sitcom, movie, screaming mother in labor. She was very super internal, and I think she really um, kind of mystified everybody around her. Like, she really was, the way she held herself was really awe-inspiring. And being there, and then actually when Yona came out, it's hard to describe, but it was like time stopping. He was just this, amazing being, you know, and it was really like his, I think his, I can't remember if his eyes were closed or open, but I just remember the feeling of having eye contact with him and this pause, you know, it was like his head came out and he was looking right at me and I was the only one who was looking at, it had been Adrian and me and then all of a sudden for a minute it was just me and him. Again, it was just amazing to do it with her. It was kind of like, all right, we're in this, and we're in this together. And I think in that way, I feel so lucky that we're, we were both women. Just the amount that, I don't know, I feel like from the start, we were just, you know, I remember going to the NICU, and I'd say, I'd be like, I'm his other mother. And luckily, the, the staff there were like, what do you mean you're his other mother? You're his mother, come in. But I think that there was a way that we were both his mothers from the beginning and there was a way that we were aligned and kind of just organized and be like, we're going to be here and make sure he's okay until he gets out. That, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe everybody, all parents have that, but I just remember feeling like just super, super, you know, unified with her. That was Kristen Zimmerman. StoryCorps interviews are normally between two people who know each other really well, but at times, when one person can't make it to the recording, one of the StoryCorps facilitators joins the interview. So thanks to Sarah Geis of StoryCorps for interviewing Kristen. Next, we'll hear an excerpt from an interview between two trans brothers. 18-year-old Chris Horn tells his older brother, Latham Bonham, how he came out as trans to their mother. Also, during the snippet, Latham recounts a funny story about their mother at his wedding. Well, well, what what were some of your reasons for, you know, not not just telling me, but not telling anyone? Well, first off, like, that's a big thing. And, you know, coming out is not easy. And, like, when I first came out as, like, you know, lesbian, that was a big, like, you know. And when was that? And that was when I was 15. And how you're 18 now? Yeah. Okay. And I just came out three years ago. 
And when did you start coming out as trans? Just trans? Like a few months ago, huh? No, in October. October. Yeah. Oh yeah, around my, your wedding. Right around my wedding, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. Around your wedding. <laughs> we had family coming in from Cleveland, and well, let's see. One of the highlights of the wedding is my mom gave this speech. She started, and to put a little background, um, my wife's family is a very conservative Christian Midwestern family extremely kind people but just um little old-fashioned and they were so excited that their daughter was marrying a man <laughs> because before that she was dating men dating women that they had a bunch of friends in from out of town also from illinois to to uh, be there for the wedding and they didn't bother to tell some of their friends that their daughter was marrying a trans guy so my mom who's just got you know she's this crazy Sicilian woman she'll just say whatever's on her mind <laughs> so we asked her to give a speech and she starts off going we just put the D in dysfunctional. Here, 30 years ago, I thought I'd have a bumbling bride. And so then she, so then everyone's going, what? And then my wife's mom is telling the DJ to cut the mic because my mom continues. She starts talking about how I used to have double D. And then she points to my, our other sister and goes, at least Melissa could have gotten them. Look at how flat chested she is. <laughs> Oh, anyways, it was, uh... It, it was, was interesting. Yeah. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, you had half of the room looking in utter, like, shock and, like, horror, and then the other half laughing, and then just some nice old Midwestern people really confused, going, what in the world is going on? But, um, anyways, that was that. Is that when you told mom when she came out here? I told, well, the first person I told was mom. Yeah. And then I told mom, you know, what do I do? And then she's, and then she was like, what are you talking about? And then she, <laughs> you know, what mom is. Well, it seems like she had a much easier time, like, with you. Well, when I, well, when I like, you know, because I wasn't like the typical like tomboy like you. Yeah. You know, I played the role pretty good. Yeah, no, you did. You played being a girl much better than I tried to. I didn't do so well. Yeah. So, I guess when I, like, changed my, like, well, not gender, but, like, wardrobe, I would say. And, like, oh. you know, clothes and everything. I think then she was questioning me a lot when I was 15. And I do think we are, you know, we're very, we're very lucky, I think, to have a mom who was, who has always been so just supportive of us just being true to ourselves whether that means getting tattoos that are horribly ugly that we're going to resent in a yeah. few years or you know just not taking from other people and just really being out there and in return we've also had a mom who's been you know very very uh what would you say honest <laughs> very honest and very strong i would say those two <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, um, yeah, no, but it's, it's worked out pretty well. Those were the voices of Latham Bonham and Chris Horn. Conversation by conversation, interview by interview, StoryCorps is collecting the stories and voices of everyday people. At StoryCorps recording booths across the country, friends and loved ones interview each other about their lives. Here, Davina Katolsky and her friend Ryan James 
remembered their experience getting married to their same-sex partner in San Francisco City Hall in 2004. Now, were you and Mo married in City Hall in San Francisco in 2004? Yes, yes yeah. we were. And that, it's one of those experiences that everyone says it's what, what it's like. I mean, the whole world stops when you're repeating the vows. It was kind of done off the cusp since we didn't have much time, and we weren't sure if it was going to be continued the next day, so one just goes. And uh, standing in line, for example, is one of those hallmark experiences where you're just... Uh, it, the words can't really adequately describe that sensation. And then, of course, standing uh, across from the person you love and repeating the, the vows. And it was uh, yeah, one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. And I think you and Molly were there a day earlier? Or? Yeah, Molly and I were down there on February 12, 2004. It was the third year in a row that we had gone to San Francisco City Hall to ask for a marriage license, something we had been doing around the Bay Area for about three years, and it was incredible. We we got down there, and we heard that um, they had just married Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, and we stayed and had our rally that we had every year, And then we walked through and um, walked through the metal detector and over to the marriage license counter, and we were granted a marriage license, and it was it was really amazing. So we didn't actually have to stand in line. We were a couple number 17, and it it was like you said, it was um, words can't describe the experience. Mark Leno married us on the steps of City Hall inside the rotunda, and. It was a profound experience when he said, by the power vested in me in the state of California, I pronounce you spouses for life. It was our, our second ceremony. We'd had our first in 1998. But this one was like being being respected by the law in a whole new way. And it just was a, a powerful experience. But I'm wondering, how has being with Mauricio made you a better person? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, it's all, I think, balance. You know, he's... um. He provides me with a pause and with reflection, and I would kind of recklessly just go forward and blaze through things and not even... It, he's all about the journey and not the destination. Mm -hmm. I was more destination-oriented. Uh -huh. So that experience alone, I mean, we've learned a lot from each other, and it's one of those ongoing, ongoing processes. I mean, we never stop learning from each other, so... It's it's hard to describe in yeah. a couple sentences. Yeah, it's it's been a remarkable process, and even though all the trials and tribulations that we've gone through, I wouldn't mm -hmm. change it for the world. Actually, I think it's made us a stronger couple. Having to fight for marriage, it's made us more loving and more committed and more understanding of one another. And I, I'm sure you could probably relate that too. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say that for Molly and I, this is almost uh, um, a spiritual experience. It's like how, how we're making ourselves stronger, how we're um, this is causing us to grow and stretch and learn and work harder, stay connected. This pulls us both out of our comfort zones <laughs> yeah. and you know asks us to be bigger people in the world and to uh, let go of ego and to give to our community and then to learn from each other. And so it, it really has been quite a, a profound journey and continues to be. And, yeah, it's really profound. It's, yeah. it's, again, it's hard to put words on it. Kaleidoscope of richness, really. Well, that's a nice way to put it, a kaleidoscope. It's, it's, yeah. And that was the voice of Davina Katolsky and her friend Ryan James. Now we're at the end of today's show, and I'd like to thank all the participants on this StoryCorps project. 
This show is produced by Antonio Ortiz. Special thanks to the StoryCorps staff in San Francisco, Sarah Geis and Eloise Meltzer, for coming to KPFA and recording these interviews. If you'd like to participate, their booth is currently residing at the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco through October 11, 2009. To make a reservation, call 1-800-850-4406, that is 1-800-850-4406, or visit the StoryCorps website at storycorps.net. If you would like to listen to the show online, go to kpfa.org and click on the archives link. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. KPFA listeners and California activists, this year marks the 60th anniversary of Pacifica Foundation, a beacon for listener-supported non-commercial free media since 1949. You can help keep KPFA radio live and get your voice heard by running for your KPFA station board and voting for the listener candidates. Nominations are now open for the 2009 KPFA local station board election. As part of the board, you will help ensure that KPFA programming continues to represent the diverse voices of our community. Please visit Pacifica.org slash elections for more information and contact the KPFA local elections supervisor to receive a nomination packet by writing an email to election at KPFA.org or call 510-848-6767, extension 626. Let's <laughs> go.